Please bow and pray with me. Holy Spirit, you are welcome here. Come and fill this place with your presence. Espíritu Santo, eres bienvenido en este lugar. Llena nuestras vidas con tu presencia. Holy Spirit, we will wait for you. In those places of suffering and of war, help us to wait for you. In our neighborhoods of loneliness and despair, help us wait for you. In our broken and hurting families and churches, we will wait for you. When we feel confused and sad and angry, we still will wait for you. Esperamos tu poder en lugares de guerra y conflicto como Siria, Palestina y Sudán del Sur. Esperamos tu misericordia en los hogares de los recién divorciados, los madres solteras, los niños abusados. Esperamos tu presencia en la vida de aquellos en nuestras iglesias que sufren cáncer, adicciones y depresión. Esperamos en ti, Espíritu Santo, porque sin ti nada somos en este mundo. Sin ti nada podemos hacer. We wait for you because you are the sustainer and the guide and the director of this mission, your mission. Calm our anxious hearts and teach us to pray and wait for you. Holy Spirit, we will listen to you. We will listen for you. In our world of international conflict, help us listen for your voice as we patiently dialogue, even with our enemies. In our communities so divided by race and culture and class and politics, help us listen for your voice as you speak amidst the stories, some of them so different than our own. In our families and churches where so many hurt alone and in silence, help us listen for you to speak through those so often ignored, so often overlooked. Pedimos Espíritu Santo por, comi por, por comunicación pacífica entre los líderes mundiales, especialmente en Rusia, China y los Estados Unidos, este país. Ayúdanos a escuchar a aquellos que no son como nosotros, Incluso a nuestros enemigos. Ayúdanos ser gente puente en nuestras comunidades, en nuestras iglesias y en nuestras familias. Ayúdanos a escuchar tu voz cada día y en cada momento, Espíritu Santo. Give us courage and compassion to lean into those spaces of tension and conflict and pain. Attune our ears to your voice, Holy Spirit, amid all the competing voices of this world. Holy Spirit, we will move with you. Help us move with you into the Galilees and Samarias of our world. Help us move with you into the underpasses and shelters and emergency rooms of our neighborhoods. Give us courage and compassion to move with you as you cross borders and boundaries that divide our nations, our communities, and our families. Give us love to move with you into relationships with broken and hurting and missing the mark people, people like us. Tu amor, Señor, no conoce fronteras. Tu evangelio no conoce fronteras. Tu iglesia no conoce fronteras. Ayúdanos a caminar contigo para entrar a esos espacios de dolor, de sufrimiento en nuestras comunidades, en nuestras familias, en nuestras iglesias. We will walk with great hope because we know that wherever you call us, you are already there and you have already been working. We are your missionary people, and you are our missionary spirit guiding us. So give us patience to wait for you. Give us wisdom to listen for you, and give us courage to move with you. 
Somos, somos Señor tu gente misionera Danos paciencia para esperarte Danos sabiduría para escucharte Danos coraje para caminar contigo A donde quiera que vayas Todo esto lo pedimos en el precioso nombre De nuestro Señor, nuestro Rey y Salvador En Jesus name, Amen Buenas noches damas y caballeros, hermanos y hermanas, gracias por su presencia en esta noche. Ladies and gentlemen, brothers and sisters, good evening and welcome to this closing night of what has been a wonderful week here together. I want to pause to say a special thank you to uh, my president, Dr. Andrew Benton and Mike Cope for extending me this wonderful opportunity to speak to you on this closing night. I also want to pause for a moment and thank my friends, my family, my church at Hollywood. I also want to pause and just thank two very special women in my life without whom I would not be here this evening. I want to thank my mother who's with us. Mom, just shout out over there. 1971, she gave her life to the Lord, never looked back, and drug us kicking and screaming along the way. <laughs> and she has been uh, an incredible spiritual matriarch in our family, and now not only with me and my brothers, our, our spouses, our children, but now with our, our grandchildren, her great-grandchildren, and we're thankful. And of course, I'm very thankful to my wife of almost 41 years this month. <laughs> Thank you, babe for helping us keep our priorities where they needed to be. I'm also grateful, very grateful, to be a part of this amazing community. It says Pepperdine University. It has been part of my life since uh, I was 19 years old and came from Fresno as a transfer student here. And for the last 24 years, it's been my, my place of full-time employment. It's been a wonderful place to work, and I am grateful to be here as a representative of this great school as well. Disruption. Some of you know what that's like. You're experiencing it right now because um, you don't have internet access. It's like, what's going on? You know, I want to get on. I, I, I got to be able to post this on Facebook. Or maybe you're just, you wish you can get up right now. Maybe some of you are walking around trying to get a signal. You know, disruption. That happens when you can't get any cell phone coverage. And some of you, I'm sorry, at Pepperdine, there's no cell phone coverage for some of you. Disruption. Events can be disruptive. It's been mentioned several times that last Saturday at our graduation, two pelicans decided to dive bomb and have fun with the audience multiple times. Twice they had to, they were, they were causing such havoc and fun and fear among the audience that uh, uh, my, my friend and provost, Dr. Rick Mars, had to stop because he couldn't pronounce another name. No one would have heard the names. Car accidents, especially here in Los Angeles, can disrupt our lives. We could spend hours stopped. We're looking for a way, using ways to get to the place we want to go. Protesters, of course, can disrupt a speech. No, I have not planned someone to do that tonight. Although, you never know. A hurricane can not only disrupt, disrupt our vacations, sometimes it can disrupt people's lives, as we saw last year in 
Puerto Rico. A health crisis. Some of you are waiting for an email, hoping that it's not positive. Can disrupt not only your life, your family, your education, your professional goals. And it's important, since we're talking about disruption, that you realize that we're not talking about innovation. That's something different. Don't confuse disruption with innovation. Innovation is simply doing things a little bit better. Maybe even doing a new thing. For instance, some of us hearing these songs that we sang before Peter and the group got up in the first part of our evening together, remember songbooks. We turned to song 728B. And then, of course, we, we had some innovation. Then we went to overhead projectors. Ooh. And, of course, now PowerPoint. That's innovation. That's not disruption. Well, for some of us, it's disruption. I miss those books. Another example of innovation, gas-driven cars to hybrid cars to electric cars. They're still just cars. No, disruption, sisters and brothers, is doing and making things that make all things obsolete. Flying cars, remember those? We're still waiting, and now that will be a disruption. Forbes tell us, tells us that in the business world, disruption changes how we think, behave, do business, learn, and go about our day-to-day our -day tasks. Harvard business professor and disruption guru, believe it, there's disruption gurus. Clayton Christensen says that a disruption displaces an existing market, an existing industry or technology, and produces something new and more efficient and worthwhile. He says it's at once destructive and creative. If you're still not sure what I'm talking about, ask Blockbuster what they think of Netflix. Ask your local matchmaker, 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 make me a, Ask your local matchmaker in your family or in your church what they think of eHarmony.com. I know what I think of it. <laughs> ask teachers and librarians what they think of Wikipedia. Maybe ask yourself what you think of face, what, what, what Facebook did to your social networking. Ask record companies what they think of iTunes. Ask advertisers what they think of YouTube. Ask the hotel industry what they think of Airbnb. Airbnb. And of course, ask taxi drivers what they think of Uber. Can you get the picture now? Can you think of anyone else who was disruptive? How about a first century Jew, carpenter's son named Jesus of Nazareth? Jesus Christ, the disruptive Savior. Have we thought about him like that? He wasn't just innovative. He didn't just come and make religion and life better. No, he was disruptive. Mark Demaz, my friend and, and multicultural church guru, he says about Jesus, the disruptor, he disrupts darkness and, and gave us light. He disrupted law and gave us grace. He disrupted sin and gave us salvation. He disrupted death and gave us life. He disrupted time and gave us eternity. Yes, he was a disruptive Savior. And what about the Holy Spirit? Then what can we expect of the Spirit that was sent by this disruptive Savior? Of course, we can expect that he will be disruptive as well. Tonight, briefly, I want to talk to you about holy disruption. Holy disruption. Spirit-led ministry in the book of Acts. we got 28 chapters to go, so I hope you're comfortable. <laughs> no. Wish we could. I'm reminded, though, Mike Cope, uh, Rick Ashley, excuse me, Rick Ashley said the other night 
about the Holy Spirit as he was kicking off this series. He reminded us that the, the Holy Spirit, maybe one of the reasons we're not so comfortable with the Holy Spirit in some of our lives, certainly in some of our churches, is that he, he's like our crazy uncle or that crazy cousin or that crazy, you name that member of your family that when you're going to have a wedding or, or a family reunion, you know you got to invite him or her. The Holy Spirit, like that relative, can often disrupt and often will disrupt everything. The Holy Spirit's like that. He often does and can disrupt everything. Just ask Saul of Tarsus. Saul of Tarsus, what do you think? Innovation or disruption? The sorcerers and the idol makers in Ephesus who turned their lives over to the Lord. Disruption or innovation? Just a little change? The Holy Spirit is unpredictable. I think about it. We sometimes, I think it's one of the reasons that's, that we have a hard time with the Holy Spirit in our personal lives and our churches. He's unpredictable. I mean, even with the things that we think we got down. I mean, is there any group that we could think of that's got baptism down? Right? And baptism and its relationship to the Holy Spirit until you start reading the book of Acts. In Acts chapter 2, you repent. And are baptized in the name of Jesus for the forgiveness of your sins. And what? You receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. Ah! But in chapter 8 and in chapter 19, people are baptized and nothing. Until some apostle comes along and lays their hands on them. But then you get to chapter 10 and it really gets weird. This uncle is totally unpredictable because in the middle of a sermon that Peter is reluctantly preaching to a Gentile named Cornelius, before he even gets to the invitation song, the Holy Spirit fills those people, and they begin to speak in tongues, and Peter goes, well, they were baptized in the Holy Spirit, so I guess we should baptize them with water. I mean, can you, can you anticipate what this Holy Spirit's going to do? Not as much as we may think. But more importantly, when we look at the book of Acts, one of the things we notice is this Holy Spirit who was sent to indwell and empower, he was, a, he was sent to indwell and empower a disruptive church, a disruptive community, characterized, if we had time, by courageous, non-discriminatory preaching. The gospel was for everyone, Jesus tells his disciples, in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and where? The ends of the earth. Jews in Judea, Jews in the diaspora, Hebraic as well as, as Greek-speaking Jews, everyone needed to be saved. Gentiles, Samaritans. Courageous, non-discriminating preaching. That was characterized by this community empowered by this disruptive spirit, sacrificial, sacrificial generosity of believers in the midst of difficulties was characteristic of this disruptive church and this disruptive Holy Spirit. Missional prayers, when they're persecuted in chapter 4, when they're persecuted in chapter 5, their church is praying, oh Lord, protect us. No, they're not. They're saying, Lord, send us, empower us. Missional prayers. But the thing I want to spend just a few minutes with you talking about today isn't about their preaching or their generosity or their prayers. It's about the inclusiveness and diversity of those early communities. This was predicted very early in the book of Acts, remember? Peter is preaching on Pentecost, and he quotes in chapter 2, starting in verse 16 to 21, he quotes from Joel. No, we're not drunk. No, we're not out of control. We are disruptive, but it's really not us, he says. It's the Holy Spirit. No, this is what was spoken by the prophet Joel. In the last days, God says, I will pour out my spirit on all people. Your sons and your daughters will prophesy. Your young men will see visions. 
Your old men will dream dreams. Even on my servants, both men and women, I will pour out my spirit in those days, and they will prophesy. And I'll show wonders in the heavens above and signs on the earth below, blood and fire and billows. Does that sound disruptive to you? The sun will be turned to darkness and the moon to blood before the coming of the great and glorious day of the Lord. And everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord, what? Will be saved. This is the, the story in the book of Acts of these people filled and empowered by the Holy Spirit is a church that is disruptive. It's a disrupt, disrupt, disruptive community. And why is it disruptive? It's disruptive because the early church was a spirit-filled revolt against the status quo, including personal and group identity. This was a disruptive community. It was inclusive and it was diverse. Jews and Samaritans, Gentiles. It was multilingual. It was multi-ethnic. It was multi-generational. It was gender-inclusive. But full membership in this disruptive community, it was conditional. Everyone was welcome. But full membership was for those who called upon the name of the Lord, chapter 2. Every, full membership was for those who believe in the Lord and, and you will be baptized, Paul and Silas say to the jailer. Disruptive. Why were they disruptive? Because no, there were no favored people. There were no favored groups. No one had privileged status. Gender didn't give you privileged status. Language didn't give you privileged status. Just look at chapter 6. Being a part of a particular ethnic group didn't give you particular or privileged status. In fact, Jesus in Luke chapter, chapter 24, the volume 1 of, chapter, of this two-volume set, he sends his disciples into the world and he says, you're going to preach repentance for the forgiveness of sins. It's going to be preached in my name to all nations, beginning here in Jerusalem. Over and over, we're reminded in the book of Acts, there are many ethnicities, but one race. Immigrant status didn't matter. Just ask Lydia. Nationality didn't matter. Ask the people in Philippi who said, aren't these Jews? And we're Romans, and they're bringing these customs that are, that are not lawful for us Romans to accept. This disruptive community was inclusive of class and culture. Everyone was equal. Could you imagine what it was like in Philippi when they got together, when Paul was released from prison, him and Silas, it says that they met in Lydia's house with all of her household, as well as, we know, a former female slave familiar with human trafficking, as well as a Roman soldier and his household. Were people like that ever together and in one place? Probably not, except in a place called the church because it was a disruptive place. Those educated and sophisticated Greek philosophers in Athens were offended by the notion that everyone was a descendant of one human being and therefore equal. Religion didn't give you any preferred status either. Ask the Jews, what? We also have to be baptized? That's what Peter says. Not only do they have to be, be converted, he tells them what, the, what Paul tells the, the, the Gentiles in places like chapter 17. He says, now fellow Israelites, I know that you acted in ignorance as did your leaders. You disavowed the holy and righteous one and asked for a murderer to be released to you. You killed the author of life, but God raised him from the dead. Could you imagine what it would have been like to hear someone like Peter, an unschooled fisherman, say, you're ignorant. That's essentially what Paul says when he's in Rome. Therefore, since 
We're God's offspring, he says. We should not think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone, an image made by human design and skill. In the past, he says in 1730, in the past, God overlooked such what? Ignorance. But now he commands all people. Red and blue, red and yellow, black and white, males and females, slave and, and free, all of us to repent. For he has set a day when he will judge the world with justice by the man he has appointed. And he's given proof of this by raising him from the dead. Now, when you read the book of Acts, what really gets your attention, at least what gets my attention, you're looking at this disruptive community filled with this disruptive Holy Spirit sent by this disruptive Savior. And you realize this disruptive community almost was disrupted. This disruptive community was almost disrupted. This Holy Spirit church that was sent on a mission to preach the good news of Jesus Christ and in so doing to bring everyone together under one head, challenging every identity-based allegiance and preference was almost disrupted. You see, if you go back to Acts chapter 15, if you open your apps to chapter 15, you see this passage where the disciples get together for the first conference. Some Jewish Christians almost hijacked the disruptive mission of the church to preach Jesus' name to all the nations, to the ends of the earth. In Acts chapter 15, we're told in verse 1, certain people came down from Judea to Antioch. Remember that amazing church in chapter, chapter 11? And they were teaching the believers, the Gentile believers, unless you are circumcised according to the custom taught by Moses, you cannot be saved. Later on in that same chapter, they have a chance to speak up again. They, Do you have anything else to say? Paul and Barnabas had been telling what they had seen, what they had a witness of God's disruptive spirit working in their ministry and in the lives of Gentiles. But these other people say, can we speak again? These people that later Paul calls the circumcision group in Galatians. Later in Philippians, he calls them dogs. What do they say? They, they stand up and they, these believers who belong to the party of the Pharisees stood up and said, no. Not only should they be circumcised, they should be required to keep the law of Moses. These people were insisting that Gentiles who are welcomed in the family of God. They're welcome. But as we heard last night from Josh, they're welcome, but they've got to accept and embrace our narrative, our story. They need to become like us. They need to become Jewish Gentile Christians. Pretty powerful story as they insist and insist. The early church had to make a decision, however, the church was being asked to decide right then and there. What do we need to do? What does God want us to do as his missionary people? What do we do with this growing number of Gentiles quickly outnumbering the Jews in the community? The question seemed to be, do these new believers who are Gentiles need to assimilate, become like us, or do we need to accommodate them. How was this church going to respond, this disruptive community, how are they going to respond to this question before them? Assimilation or accommodation? Well, the Holy Spirit was very clear, and I love it that James, speaking on behalf of the believers, says in 1528, 
when he's right, he's dictating the letter that's going to be shared with all the Gentile churches. He tells them in verse 28, it seemed good to the Holy Spirit and to us. Isn't that cool? We all agreed, and the Holy Spirit did too. No, it says the Holy Spirit agreed, and we agreed with him. It was good to the Holy Spirit, and so we agreed. Why was it good to the Holy Spirit? Because the Holy Spirit was a disruptive spirit, empowering a disruptive community. And so their response is, we don't want to burden you with anything beyond the following requirements. You are to abstain from food sacrificed to idols, from blood, from the meat of strangled animals, and from sexual immorality. You will do well to avoid these things. Did you hear what he said in that letter? Did you hear what he said? What people say and what people hear are two different things. Here's what I think the Gentiles heard as Paul and Timothy took, and, and Silas took that letter to the Gentile dominant churches. Here's what I think they heard. We don't have to do church like the Jewish Christians. To have full membership, we don't have to do it the Jewish Christian way. And the disruptive community grew and has never stopped growing. So we've got to ask this question this evening. I think it's an important question. The question I think we need to ask ourselves is, is the church today, your congregation, our congregation in Hollywood, are we a disruptive or a disrupted community? If we say no, unfortunately, we are a disrupted community rather than a disruptive community, we have to ask ourselves why. And, and that's a conversation I hope you'll go home and have prayerfully with each other, with your families, with your congregations, with your leadership teams. Are we disrupted or disruptive? Disrupted or disruptive? I want to suggest two reasons why we're often a disrupted rather than a disruptive community. Just, just two reasons. There are many others, but I think one is that in this ever-changing world, our world is changing so fast. I mentioned ways that it's not just being innovated, it's being disruptive. In a world that's being changed so fast, we want to preserve at least one place that feels like home. As a result, it's not our intention, but it's the way ultimately things work out. As a result, sometimes we end up caring more about preserving our tradition, our, our preferences, than we do about reaching the de-churched and the unchurched. By the way, I've seen this not only in dominant group churches, that is white churches, I've seen it in black churches, I've seen it in Latino churches, I've seen it in Korean churches here and across the country. Like some of the Jews in Acts 15, I think some of us have to admit the reason that we're disrupted as opposed to disruptive is that we feel threatened. Like I think some of those Jews in Acts 15 were feeling, I think some of the Jews in Acts 15 were literally concerned about the salvation of the Gentiles. Could they really be saved if they're not circumcised and they don't keep the law of Moses? I think some were sincerely concerned about that. But I think, and again, we don't know. We'll have to ask Luke and the Holy Spirit someday when we're in the presence of God. But I think some of them were also threatened. We're going to be outnumbered. Soon we're going to be foreigners and maybe even minorities in our own churches. Another reason I think we struggle with being a disrupted church is that many of our traditions and our preferences are actually core to our identity as a distinct people. I mean, how could we be the church of Christ, small c, for instance, the acapella churches of Christ, if we do A, B, C, or D? If we allow these innovations, or especially these people who have different ways of doing things and thinking about things than we do. And so we end up spiritualizing our traditions and preferences and, 
And, of course, saying, well, that just doesn't please the, God, the Lord. In fact, that might cause you to lose your salvation. And so maybe there's innovation, but seldom are there any disruptive practices or people. We believe we're inviting other people to assimilate to a God-given, universally applicable practice. Or, or, and those just happen to reflect my personal preferences. Ask yourself this question. If you're not sure yet that you're on page with me, think about this. Who would not, who would not feel welcomed or comfortable in your church? Who would not feel welcomed or comfortable in your church? San Francisco Giant fans and New York Yankee fans? Mmm. Californians, Texans, Democrats, Republicans? Singles, single parents, like my mom's single parents on welfare. Millennials with their cell phones and their earbuds. The unchurched, the dechurched, the growing number of religious nuns. By the way, 49% of the religious nuns, people who say now they have no religious preference, used to be religious. They were in our churches. How about members of the LGBT community and their allies? How about women? We've heard a lot about that this week. The question I'm thinking about since last night is, whose narrative are we listening to? Is there room for Me Too in our church? Would blacks, Latinos, Asians, Native Americans, whites feel welcome in our church? It depends whose narrative we are trying to assimilate them to. Do black lives matter in our church? Or is it just another passing fad? When are they going to quit talking about race? How about undocumented immigrants? Whose narrative? Do we embrace our true identity, all of us, our true identity as resident aliens, foreigners and aliens living in this country whose true citizenship is in heaven and not here? Do we have our spiritual green cards or are we holding on to our U.S. passports? Here's a way to think about that one. Ask yourself this question. Are we American Christians or Christians in America? Think about that. The way you answer that question says a lot about your ultimate identity. I'm an American Christian. As opposed to I'm a Christian in America. The latter will help us, trust me, to identify a lot more with the documented and undocumented among our, our communities who often don't feel welcome. What kind of community would we be if all of these people, and there's other groups I have not mentioned, if all these people were made to feel welcomed and loved, and not only that, but encouraged to participate fully and actively and serve in our churches, what kind of communities would we be if these were the churches we went home to tomorrow night? Well, I think Mike's hoping tomorrow afternoon after breakfast. What kind of community would we be? We'd be a disruptive community. We'd be a disruptive community. And by the way, I'm not saying that we embrace every lifestyle and worldview and affirm them. But we welcome them just as we were welcomed. But what would limit our ability to be welcoming to these and other groups and be that disruptive community that would resemble the one we read about in the book of Acts? What would limit our success? One is what 
almost derailed the church in chapter 15, and even back earlier in chapter, chapter 10 and 11, when Peter goes back to, to Jerusalem and has to explain himself, what was he doing in a, in a Gentile's home, not only eating with them, but preaching the gospel? And it's not till chapter 11, verse 18, that the apostles go, oh, oh, when Jesus said go into all the, all the world and make disciples of all the nations, he meant all those other people too, not just the Jews and all those other nations. Huh? Not till chapter, eight, chapter 11, verse 18, huh? Are we embracing assimilation rather than accommodation? Paul seems to be arguing against that in Romans chapter 14 and 15. Jesus is being used by Paul as an example of something very different in Philippians chapter 2. He's not saying that Jesus came and said, assimilate. He came and accommodated himself. He became like us, took on our story so that we could take on his glory. We're going to also have to engage in some intentional and difficult conversations. If we want to be a disruptive community, we have to go home and have some really intentional, prayerful, difficult conversations. About what? About our true identity and mission as a disruptive people sent by God who is a disruptive God. One way we can have those conversations, go home this week, start praying and thinking. Look at Acts chapter 15 and realize those conversations need to be broad. Everyone in the congregation needs to have an opportunity to speak into it. Respectful listening is characteristic in chapter 15. Honesty and humility, chapter 15. Respect for the word of God, chapter 15. Emissional bias. Do you remember what James says? We don't want to make it hard for the Gentiles to come to the Lord. That's why we embrace accommodation. It's not just to make everybody happy. It's so that they can come to the Lord with fewer barriers. Those unnecessary barriers. Let's get them out of the way. And then, of course, there's great com communication. The, the, the process is shared and everybody communicates with each other. Some of you might be thinking, well, wait, you know, I'm going back to a church that really isn't into that. What can I do? Find a new church? No. That might be your option, but it probably isn't. You're going to just go to another disrupted church. So what do you do if, if you feel like you're the only one? As Nike says, what? Just do it. The church might just catch up. I know it did at the College Church of Christ in Fresno. Our family arrived in 1971. I'm so thankful there were a few disruptive people there. Jay and Alice Ferris. Disruptive? They invite the single Mexican lady on welfare and her four crazy boys into their home. And then invite them to their church, about 400 members at the time. One black family, everybody else white. And in walks Mary Lou Rodriguez and Dan and Michael and Larry and Brian. And there was disruption. But I am thankful that Jay and Alice, Lynn Rash, her sister, they were disruptive people. And then we got there, and I can't tell you that everybody was thrilled to see us. But you don't have to have a majority. You don't even have to have a supermajority. Alice and Jay and Lynn and the girls. And then we get there and we meet Edna and Jim Biggers. Ed's going to come up in just a moment and lead us in our closing prayer. It was, it was his mother, his father, who were disruptive people and invited us into that life. I wouldn't be here without those people. And they didn't wait for the church to catch up. 
You go to that church today, it's a very different church. It's even got a Mexican elder now, my brother Mike. <laughs> very diverse church. Praise the Lord. Now, you know, we, we, you look at your photo albums. We all got those photo albums. You got your favorite photos. Maybe the one that was taken at a wedding. We recently, our daughter Monica, uh, recently married, just had her first year anniversary to an amazing man. And, you know, we took family pictures, quite a few of them. But thing is, you look at those long and hard, and you just realize, wow, this is amazing. There is a family portrait that we need to take a long and hard look at. It's the portrait of a disruptive church. And it should be hanging in the foyer of your church. It should be behind the baptistry there where we used to have a river scene. This portrait of a disruptive church should be there. It will help us to embrace. When we look at it, it will remind us that we need to embrace our identity as a diverse colony of resident aliens who will one day arrive at the harbor of our true homeland. You're wondering, what family photo are you talking about? Ours looks all black, all white, all Latino, or all Asians. No, you're looking at the wrong portrait. I'm talking about the one that John gave us. And by the way, this portrait is old. It's 2,000 years old. John gave us a portrait of a community. It's our family picture. You go back, some of you have pictures of your family when your father and your grandfather were little, and you see all those people there. Here's our family. Revelation chapter 7, verse 9 through 10. After this, John says, I looked. And there before me was a great multitude. No one could count it from every nation and tribe and people and language. They were standing before the Lord, before the throne, before the Lamb. And they were wearing white robes and and they were holding palm branches in their hands. And they cried out with a loud voice, Salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. Did you notice, by the way, that John is not colorblind? Some people think the way we're going to get beyond some of the things I've talked about is we'll just become colorblind. I don't see color. Well, then if you don't, you won't see me. John sees color. John sees color, and he's celebrating it. He's celebrating this inclusive and diverse community. And he says, this is not only who we were, it's who we will be. The churches should look Sounding like someone from Hollywood, like a preview of coming attractions. Did you notice as we close tonight, did you notice what holds this? And we're going to keep the slide up here for just a moment. But notice, look at this text. Do you notice what holds this inclusive and diverse community together? Two things hold it together. A savior and a song. This savior is not democratic. He's not a Democrat. He's not a Republican. He's not black. He's not white. He's not Asian or Latino. The Bible tells us he was rich, but for our sakes he became poor. He was all-powerful, but emptied himself and became a servant of everyone. He was sinless, and yet he was tempted in every way like you and me. He was popular, but with all the wrong people. He had friends in low places where the whiskey flowed and the beer chased his tears away. He was the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world, slain for mankind. It was a Savior that helped that group stay together. Their eyes were on Jesus, not on each other, not on, are they raising their hands? Oh, no, not again. 
There they are saying amen. Why don't they, it's orderly. What do they understand about orderly worship? 50-minute sermon, are you serious? 15-minute sermon, are we supposed to take that seriously? That's a sermonette for Christianettes who smoke cigarettes. <laughs> they only sing those old songs? They only sing those new songs? They're opening their, they're on their phone again. Look at those kids on the phone again. Well, you're looking at them on their phone, they're reading the Word of God, probably, or maybe they're on Facebook. Maybe they're actually saying something cool about the place they're at. Maybe they're taking a picture and posting it. There's a song, though, that's also holding this group together. And by the way, as we think about this community that we're going to be a part of, maybe tomorrow, maybe 100 years from now, maybe 1,000 years from now, notice the song. They're not singing the national anthem. They're not singing, I'm proud to be an American, which, by the way, I am. Very proud. My dad, my father-in-law are buried in national cemeteries because they serve this country. I'm proud of them. But that's not what we'll be singing in 100 years or 1,000 years. No, they're going to be singing the song of the Lamb. And no one there in that community, not then and not in the future, no one in that community is going to be looking around going, whoa, these aren't my kind of people. Well, where are my people? By the way, if you are an ethnic minority, you've ever walked into a dominant group building, it's like our radar. We notice, we go, I'm the only Mexican in the room. <laughs> Women, you know what it's like, you walk in, I'm the only woman in the room. Men, nowadays, we walk, I'm the only man in the radar. Somehow we pick it up right away. They're not saying, whoa, I'm the only one of my type, or where are my people? Where are the Texans around here? Where are the Dodger fans? No. No one is saying, but they're not our kind of people. No one is saying, I don't want to worship like I'm not accustomed to. I'm not going to worship like that. I prefer a different way. Why? Why is there no grumbling and complaining? Because each and every person in that family portrait, this one right here, regardless of their nation, their tribe, their people, group, or their language, they recognize something important. They recognize that they were not worthy to sit at the table to which they have been invited. They weren't worthy to sit at that table that they have been invited to, that Paul tells us is the table of our Father. We've been invited to his household. He says, come on and sit at my table. And these people can't even sit at that table because they know they're not worthy. So what do they do instead? They stood and they sang. Would you please stand? As God's spirit-filled and disruptive people, sometimes disrupted, but we were called to be disruptive by a Holy Spirit who is disruptive, sent by a Savior who is disruptive. Let's stand, let's sing, not just now, but tomorrow and always. That salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. Amen, amen and amen.